Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. If I seem to be talking a bit faster than usual in this podcast, it's because some extra material has come up that I wasn't planning to cover. And as well as that, my cat has been especially demanding today, but uh, he is asleep in the linen cupboard at the moment. And so I've got a window of opportunity to get a few things off my chest. I had promised myself that I wasn't going to talk about submarines again. You must all be sick of submarines. But I couldn't help but notice some media reporting on, at first, what might seem like a very trivial topic. And that is, Defence cancelled a $1.8 million consulting contract with Deloitte's for the submarine program. Uh, That appears to be for one person for one year. I've been in the business of consulting myself, never to defence, but to some pretty large corporates. And when you come in to provide that sort of strategic advice, it's not a nine to five, Monday to Friday thing. You come in for shorter periods of time to contribute your knowledge and most importantly, your contacts, which can occasionally be unique. So you're providing information that isn't readily available through other channels. When you do the maths on this, 1.8 million for a year, let's say it's a five-day-a-month activity rather than something less, that actually works out at $30,000 per day. I don't know about you, but I would like to know who on earth is worth that sort of money. That appears even by the standards of defense, which is handing out money left, right, and center to retired US admirals, how they can possibly have come up with that sort of figure is just completely beyond me. Anyway, unfortunately, as I say, it is trivial compared with the overall defense budget, but I fear that it's sort of illustrative of a system that appears to have lost all sense of value for money. And I also note defense themselves are pretty sensitive about this because they basically refuse to provide any further information about what it is that they're doing. Okay, moving on. When I concluded the previous podcast, I said that I would have a bit of a look at Air 6500, the series of projects for an integrated air and missile defense system, where I thought that the Defense Strategic Review had, I thought, pretty outrageously tried to tip the playing field in favor of one of the bidders, Northrop Grumman, that has an existing system compared with Lockheed Martin, who I have the impression that they're offering more of a developmental approach to everything. I might be wrong. I'm only going by the presentations that have been made to me. I've not seen either submission that's gone to defense. And I thought for the DSR to be getting involved in that sort of detail mm, didn't seem right to me. But I could have been wrong because there is another approach to the Air 6500 series of projects that might actually make more sense. And this could be what the DSR was driving at. Because in that space, we have the existing contract for LAN 19 Phase 7. This has gone to Raytheon Australia plus Kongsberg and Canberra-based CEA, the Canberra-based company that's providing the radars for the delivery of a NASAM system, ground-based air defense that actually makes use of ground-launched air-to-air missiles. Very effective, successful product, successful system. 
It's been sold to more than a dozen countries and most recently is being supplied to Ukraine and has done a great job there. One of the NASAMS users, Finland, has decided to add on for a medium-range air defence missile capability, David Sling, the missile from Israeli company Rafael, which without getting into a whole lot of technical detail, appears to be the world's best medium-range air and missile defence missile. It has an extraordinary seeker head. Many of the experts rate it as better than PAC-3 or any of the European equivalents. If you were to add the David Sling missile to the existing Land 19 Phase 7 system, you would have pretty close to a fully developed, mature product with high levels of Australian content that can meet most, if not all, of the Air 6500 requirements. So maybe... Maybe the DSR is onto something here. Maybe that's something that defence should consider, which would be a huge saving in cost and time. Just a thought. Now, as people who listen to this regularly know, one of the things that really annoys me is the amount of exaggeration that takes place when it comes to government statements, the impression that the government gives about what's happening in the defence domain. I noticed a few days ago that Pat Conroy, the Defence Industry Minister, when announcing an F-35 paint shop being opened by BAE Systems at RAF Base Williamtown, he described this as the only one outside the US. Really? Really? I question that. Now, that claim wasn't in the media release, but it was in the minister's statement, and that was picked up by the ABC. Now, there are F-35 assembly lines in Italy and Japan, as well as the main one at uh, Fort Worth in Texas. It strikes me as very odd that these two additional assembly lines wouldn't also have painting facilities. And it also strikes me as extremely odd that all of the F-35s outside the US, and at the moment that's about 400 of them, that all of them would have to be shuttled back to the US for the stealth coatings to be reapplied. Could be wrong, but it just strikes me as just improbable. Another one, you know, yeah, ministers trying to see, but it's exciting news anyway. Why go to the trouble of adding on stuff that just doesn't seem to stack up? In the same category, and this one I find even more annoying, Defence and the ministers announced that as part of, associated with Talisman Sabre, there was a high Mars rocket firing into the ocean. I think it happened off the coast of WA. And the claim was this demonstrates the capability of high Mars against naval targets. Well, no, it friggin' doesn't. It demonstrates that a high Mars rocket will fly precisely to the GPS coordinates that it's been given. It's irrelevant whether that point is on the surface of the ocean on the top of Mount Everest or on an ant heap somewhere, it's going to go to precisely where the GPS coordinates tell it to. And the idea that it's somehow demonstrating some sort of anti-ship capability is a nonsense. I'll add to that by saying most ships are moving and HIMARS in the configure or the rockets that Australia is getting don't have that ability to take out a moving target. So yeah, I suppose if it's a ship that is at anchor somewhere, but really that's no big deal. 
again, hype and exaggeration that isn't justified, which segues to one of the offshoots of Osmin in the news in the missile domain that within two years, Australia will be manufacturing the HIMARS GMLRS rockets. GIMLAs, the Americans always like to turn acronyms into a word, GIMLAs rockets. I thought that was actually a misprint. I'm not against Australia manufacturing any munitions at all, let alone something useful like a GIMLAs, but this rocket was developed in 2005. And, pardon the joke, it's not actually rocket science. It needs a casing, a warhead, a rocket motor, a fuel tank, and a navigation unit. can put all of that together, away you go. Surely we can do better than this under the GUIO, Guided Weapons and Explosive Enterprise Ordnance. Yeah, make more stuff here, sure. But really, Gimlers? There are a whole lot of other things that we could be doing that are forward-leaning, so to speak. For example, Japan and the US have a joint program to develop hypersonic missiles. Well, that's really looking into the future. When I compare that with, what are we getting? We're getting second-hand nuclear submarines. Sorry for submarines again. And older generation helicopters in the form of Apache and Blackhawks. We are putting $70 million into the future PRISM missile, precision strike missile, and that is one that has course correction, so you can use against moving targets. But defense will not say what we are getting for that $70 million. So let's go to this new segment of questions defense won't answer. And this one is from November last year. And I wish I could do sound effects because I think I'd do the toot toot of the you know clown whore car horn thing. The three questions to defense back in November were, what is Australia's involvement in the prison program? Two, when did it begin? Three, does this indicate that Australia plans to acquire PRISM, and if so, when? Nothing, nothing at all. I think an acknowledge, the usual standard acknowledgement that my question had been received, but not a reply. This is just such basic information that should be publicly available. No reason why it should be hidden at all. Speaking of other petty annoyances in the media domain, Defence is now inserting clauses into contracts, giving them the right to review stories prior to publication. Well, just like happens in North Korea. When I say the right to review stories, not the right directly to review, say, my stories, but if a company has contributed information, I've included that in a report, as I frequently do, and then as a courtesy sent back to the company for fact-checking, I want to make sure that what goes out there is as close to 100% accurate as I can possibly make it. Those companies are now obliged to send that to the department for some sort of final approval and sign-off. Don't people in defence have better things to do with their time, like finding savings or speeding up process, not going through the copy of journalists looking for what? I just cannot imagine what, why anyone is bothering. If I had time, I'd tell you the story about how all the time big, brave Air Force officers ran away and hid from three Australian journalists. If not today, I'll do that next time. It's one of a myriad stories that I find quite amusing. So staying with uh, rocket systems for a while, and I've uh, mentioned this in the hard copy of Asia Pacific Defense Reporter, there are at least two other very viable systems out there that many would argue are better than HIMARS. The first is from Israeli company Elbit, Pulse, 
P-U-L-S, which is stands for Precision and Universal Launching System. It's a successor to a Lynx rocket launch system. You get eight canisters per truck compared with six for HIMARS, 300 kilometers range. Future growth includes launching rockets full of loitering munitions. It's not only in service in Israel, but it's been purchased by the Netherlands, Spain, Norway, and a couple of other European countries are having a very close look at it. Why haven't we studied it? No answer to that. And of course, previously I've mentioned the Korean Chunmu, multiple launch rocket systems, 12 launch tubes, albeit a larger truck. And basically it's a more modern version of HIMARS with a lot of smart missiles, which could be fully manufactured in Australia. One of them conducted a firing trial during Talisman Sabre. Do you think anyone in Australia has had a serious look at it? Well, the answer to that is no. And there's no reason why it shouldn't be considered. Following on from that, this is the segue to what I really wanted to cover, and that's to talk a little bit about South Korea, which very much wants a closer security relationship with Australia. And I'll start with the question. Okay, class, who invented the printing press? Johannes Gutenberg, right? in 1440, printed the Bible. That's what we're all taught. Well, certainly I was taught. People of my generation were taught in Australian schools, and I suspect it's pretty much throughout the English-speaking world. 1440, Johannes Gutenberg, right? No, wrong, completely wrong. Korea, more than 200 years earlier, developed the amazing Tripakata Koreana, printed Buddhist texts that appeared on 80,000 wooden blocks. This was a national project spanning 15 years that began in 1237. And amazingly, this was to replace an earlier set of printing blocks destroyed by the Mongols in 1232 that might have been developed as early as the 10th century. This was and remains a technological marvel. These 80,000 blocks were carved with such precision that it looks like a single person had done it, though analysis tells us that at least 30 people were involved. And guess what? They still exist today in pristine condition, more than 700 years after they were made. It was an astounding technological and national achievement to be able to produce these 80,000 blocks, which could print 6,000 books of scripture with more than 50 million individual characters. And while most Europeans were living in mud huts and eating dirt and bark, Korea was creating this just amazing achievement. By the way, there obviously is still a lot of Koreans living in mud huts and eating bark and dirt themselves, but to at the same time have a society that was capable of undertaking something of this scale, I find absolutely mind-boggling. In the West, When we think pyramids, we think Egypt. When we think printing, we should think Korea. I think this example alone should change our perceptions of Korea because it's a country of remarkable achievements looking for a closer defense relationship with Australia, about which our planners seem lukewarm at best. By the way, I speak of South Korea because the North is also remarkable, but for totally different and exceptional unpleasant reasons. Without all of the history, let's start at the end of the Korean War. The country was totally devastated. 
First, starting on June 25th, 1950, the North overran the South with just a tiny enclave around Busan remaining in South Korea and US and allied hands. Then the South, mainly with the support of or the involvement of US forces, but with the participation of Commonwealth countries, including Australia, they overran the North right up to the Yellow River. Then the North, with the involvement of China, pushed into the South. And then the South pushed north again to the 38th parallel. And everything has been stuck there since the armistice of July 27, 1953. The US dropped more tons of bombs on Korea in three years than they did in the entire Pacific theater, including Japan itself, during the Second World War. Now, from this utter, utter devastation and loss of life, I mean, we're talking about a couple of million civilians being killed. The South only started serious industrialization in the 1970s and 80s, and they are now a world powerhouse. The overall economy of South Korea is actually about the size of Australia's. We are kind of 10th and 12th on the on the list. That bounces around slightly, but, you know, they're comparable. The South Korean population is larger, slightly less than double Australia's, but the countries do have a lot of overlap, a lot of shared interests. Remember the excitement of our Prime Minister a few weeks ago about this so-called export of 100 boxer vehicles to Germany. I felt that that claim was overdimensioned and said so. You might recall that he was saying that this order of $1 billion was the largest ever Australian export deal. Okay, keep that in mind. Last year, Korea exported $20 billion worth of military hardware or... This sort of boxer order every fortnight and for every fortnight of the year. Companies such as Hanwha, Korea Aerospace Industries, and a couple of others are genuine world players. The South Korean government has strategy documents for all sorts of things, but the official national security strategy of the relatively new Yoon government was released in June, and it mentions Australia four times. It also mentions specifically the sale of self-propelled howitzers to the army. And I think from reading the thing, the only such hardware sale that's mentioned in the entire document, it's subtitled Global Pivot State for Freedom, Peace and Prosperity and sets out a vision for the future. This is how South Korea now sees itself. Historically, the peninsula was very isolated. I mean, we're talking for centuries but now that has completely changed with a country open and democratic, and it is seeing, I think quite correctly, its economic and security future very much in the direction of cooperation and collaboration, particularly with the US and particularly with Asia, in which they include Australia. And basically, having been given a taste of freedom and prosperity and democracy, they quite like it and they wish it to continue. And the government of Korea wants to take advantage and build on regional connections and relationships. Australia, for a while, has been the fourth largest trading partner of South Korea. And now, following the selection of the Hanwha Redback Infantry Fighting Vehicle for LAM 400 Phase 3, following on from the earlier sale of self-propelled howitzers, it's a relationship that South Korea wishes to build on. I mentioned the Chunmu multiple rocket launch system, but they have space technology, warships, submarines, main battle tanks, satellites, advanced jet trainer aircraft, which would or is 
a strong candidate for Air 6002, they have a huge amount to offer. But back here, I find that it's all AUKUS, AUKUS, AUKUS. Well, let's hope that in next year's national security statement, the Republic of Korea gets more than a passing mention. This is a technologically very advanced country that wants to work with Australia. We should be flattered. They see the relationship as being of equals, two middle-sized powers in Asia, wanting a stable and prosperous future. They also like Australia and very much respect our participation in the Korean War. That's something that very few Australians seem to be aware of, but I can tell you, having spent time in Korea, it's something that many people there are aware of and to this day remain extremely grateful for the effort that Australia put in. So I'll wrap up by saying, and this is a message for our defence decision makers and policy people and politicians, let's not waste the opportunity. Speaking very frankly, countries like the UK are declining power and never going to come to our aid. On the other hand, a rising technologically advanced nation like the Republic of Korea strikes, strikes me as being a better short and long-term security bet. Okay, I've exceeded my time limit. Thank you again for listening and see you next time. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.